Heavenly Father, Father, we give you the praise for your work here. We acknowledge that apart from you, nothing would exist or grow, and that over the last six months, how clear has it been to us that this is your church, you are the authority, you are the provider, you have the plan, you are the one bringing all things about. It is to your glory, and we are amazed, Father, at your provision and your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Father, that we can regather today. I pray a blessing, Father, on all who are here, a blessing of protection and health, that this would be a day that they would leave in joy and remain healthy, coming back in weeks to come, Father. Protect us so that we may continue in this work with you leading us forward. I pray, Father, for the word before us that it would come into our heart by the power of the Spirit. It would help us see and know you better and follow you more obediently. Help us, Father, to be your witnesses in this dark and trying world. And as many face difficulty and as they consider the end of their own life or the potential end of the world in some minds, we would be there to give an explanation and something encouraging by what we learn. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who've been following, last week we were at the time of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where we stopped, kind of in the middle of the action at that point, Judas and the soldiers approaching, Jesus announcing their arrival. And with that, we reach the moment of his arrest in the story of his passion. Now, Jesus has been intimating and even explicitly stating that this moment was going to happen. He's been saying it for some time. In fact, just a short time earlier at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus told these men, his disciples, I'm gonna be handed over for crucifixion. And in that one statement with the term handed over, Jesus implicated both the Jewish authorities and the Romans for their respective parts in this transaction of sorts. You have the Romans uh, being the only ones in that time to practice crucifixion. So if he's going to be handed over for crucifixion, it's obvious that he's being handed over to Romans. And if a Jew is going to be handed over to Romans, there's only one group that could do that, which are the Jewish authorities. So Jesus has made clear the process that's about to ensue. And now in verse 45 the arrest unfolds, and it begins with Jesus announcing his betrayer. Let's go back to that moment. He says, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he was betraying him, he who was betraying him, gave them a sign saying, whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you've come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. You know, last week we were studying the challenge of the disciples to stay awake in the garden when Jesus told them, watch, meaning watch me in my prayer time. Now that moment has come to an end because the opportunity is over. Judas has arrived with his entourage and Jesus sees them. He knows what's gonna happen. He announces it. And it's almost as if Jesus is narrating his own arrest through this process. This this has been going on for a while. He keeps telling the men what to expect. He's made several statements. And all of that anticipation, all of this foreknowing and narrating, it kind of begs a big question, doesn't it? Why didn't Jesus run away? 
Now we know the answer to that, obviously. Uh, Jesus is entering into his own death voluntarily. This is part of the plan of God. So as a matter of necessity, he's not going anywhere. He's a willing sacrifice for the sake of those for whom he dies. And in that sense, he is a a victim, not, not in the sense of someone who's forced to do what he's doing, but in the sense of an unjust death. But knowing that, we see this dilemma, Jesus being in a position to escape, everything he knows is coming, and yet standing firmly for it. You know, if he wanted to stop it, he could. That is an important theme in Matthew's gospel. In fact, in all the gospels. You will notice as you study the story of the passion, wherever you go in the gospels, there is this recurring reference from the writers about Christ knowing what was coming, but more than that, controlling it even as it unfolds. You're gonna see this time and time again, and it's very important. It's important to understand Jesus is completely in control of what's happening. Because if you didn't know better, you might read this story as if he's, he's just swept away by some grand conspiracy in which Jesus, at the end of this, is powerless to stop this unjust death, right? And we know differently theologically, but you may have run into people who see it that way. In fact, if you've ever heard this, there are some unbelievers who would argue that God the Father is a murderer they would say to you, because he sent his son to the cross. How can you worship a God who is a murderer? And of course, they grossly misrepresent the story of the Gospels. The truth is exactly the opposite. Jesus is voluntarily going to the cross, just as he planned it from the foundation of the world. And to ensure that it goes just as he has planned, he harnesses the enemy and the forces that the enemy has under his control to orchestrate exactly the manner of this outcome as well. It's not just the fact that it's going to happen. It's going to happen the way Jesus wants it to happen in the timing that he wants it to happen. And just this moment with him in the garden kind of reminds you of this very vividly. He has remained in the one place that he knows Judas will go looking for him which is why he sent Judas off to betray him, which is why he needed Judas among the 12. He needed someone who didn't believe such that then they would have the interest in betraying the Lord. And then he orchestrates the timing in which Judas can go about doing it. Notice he even says to Judas, "What do what you've come for. He's almost looking at him as a robot, if you will, a, a man who's been programmed by God in the sense of opportunity and timing to get what God wants out of this moment. Look, let's put it simply, Jesus is in control of these events. And he is now bringing them about, as much as his humanity dreads it, out of a need and out of a desire to obey the Father. And all of this kicks into high gear now. Verse 47, Judas arrives. He's got this crowd around him brandishing clubs and and spears. You know, if you read that at first, it sounds kind of like one of those B-movies where you see a bunch of angry villagers showing up with pitchforks and, and, you know, torches and so on. But John tells us in John 18 that these are not angry villagers. First of all, the bulk of them is a Roman cohort. Now, a cohort is a military unit. It varied in size. Could be as little as 200. Could be as much as 600. We're not sure in this case, but I would probably think smaller is more likely here. But still, even just 200 soldiers, that seems like overkill, doesn't it? To arrest one guy on a hillside in the middle of the night? Well, if you understand the circumstances the Romans faced at this time of year, you'd see why they went this far. Passover. Passover was a big deal to the Jewish people. I think I mentioned to you guys in an earlier lesson how um, Judas would have been required as part of his work that night for his 30 pieces of silver to be a witness before the Roman authorities in testifying concerning the potential criminal activity 
of Jesus. And in that testimony, he would then uh, convince the Romans to dispatch the soldiers. Much like in our case, you need to have an indictment or something before you might go to, a grand, uh, go to trial. They had to have a, some testimony concerning the need for these soldiers. So he probably did that maybe before uh, Pontius Pilate. And if we assume he did, because that's what Roman law required, then you would have understood why Pilate would have sent so many. Because traditionally, Passover was a time of great unrest in the city of Jerusalem. It's, I guess you could think of it like our 4th of July. It's Jewish Independence Day in a sense, not in the sense of the modern state, but in the historical sense of Israel's history. They came out of Egypt at Passover. It was their freedom moment out of slavery. And as such, every year when Passover rolled around, while they were under Roman occupation, the passions of the Jews were stirred up. This idea that here we are again celebrating uh, our freedom from slavery while being in a kind of slavery now, and it caused a lot of tension and unrest. Uh, riots would break out, insurrection would be, a, a, a conspiracies of insurrection would start up, and the Romans knew this. And if there was anything Romans wanted, it was peace, you know, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They didn't like disturbances. They didn't like anybody rising up. So every year, they would send a large contingent of soldiers to the Antonian Fortress in the city of Jerusalem as a way of establishing and keeping the peace of Passover. And they had their ears out. Anytime somebody suggested there was somebody about to stir trouble, they overreacted, intentionally so, to keep it from getting anywhere and keep the peace. So in this case, when Pilate hears probably from Judas that there's a guy out there claiming to be king, saying he's going to take over the throne, well, that's enough for Pilate to say, send a cohort. Let's stop this before it gets started. And that leads to this sort of comical scene of 200 soldiers with their torches and their clubs marching up the, the side of the Mount of Olives looking for one guy from Nazareth. And in this crowd, you also hear that there is a representative of the high priest. Why not him himself? Because this is right before Passover, and the high priest has to officiate on Passover. But they can't be unclean. And if they came into contact with a grave or if they did something else that was against the law, they could be considered unclean. So the high priest stayed at home that night, wouldn't go out. So he sends his slave, a representative of him. Luke tells us also that there were captains of the guard of the temple there. These are like the, the temple police, Jewish men. And they've come along with the uh, cohort. And then finally, Luke tells us there are representatives from the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council. So this, there's this gaggle of Roman soldiers and Jewish police and Jewish representatives of the Sanhedrin and a slave representing the high priest. And they're all coming up the mountain. And all of them are violating Jewish law, at least the Jews are. Because under Jewish law, you could not arrest someone at night and you could not try someone at night. And ironically, here are all these self-righteous men charging up the hill after Jesus to convict him of some made-up crime while they themselves are violating Jewish law in the process. So now on to the arrest. It's dark, as you can imagine, and there were many people probably on the hillside. Jews flooded the city for Passover. They slept wherever they could. So the Romans don't know what Jesus looks like. There's no photos. No one showed up with a 8 by 10 glossy and said, you're looking for this guy. So they don't know who they're looking for, and it's dark. So without an eyewitness, they'd have no hope. So Judas is their key. And Judas has said, here's what I'm going to do. I'll find him for you. When I find him, I'll tell you who he is by kissing him. That's the guy you need to seize. Now, why does he choose this method? It's entirely self-serving. Here's what Judas is thinking. He wants to pretend to be friendly in that moment, as he normally would have, I guess. 
and do so in the hope that no one realizes he's the one leading the Romans up that hill. It'll be plausible deniability. He'll be able to kiss Jesus. Oh, hey, Jesus, how you doing? Oh, look, there's a Roman cohort here. And then they seize Jesus. He can go, oh, my, look, Jesus, what happened? He's trying to play this off for his fellow disciples. He doesn't want to be implicated with them. And so he's created this little sign. He's acting in a cowardly way, obviously, betraying Jesus, not willing to stand up to who he really is. And Jesus is not going to play the game with him. And so Jesus announces his intentions even before he does it. Luke tells us this in Luke twenty-two forty-seven. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So he speaks up before the kiss takes place, and he announces it. Oh, you're going to kiss me to betray me. How interesting. Obviously, he's not looking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. But he makes this statement for the benefit of the disciples. That is, he wants them to understand Judas's role. And then after being called out, Judas just kind of, I assume, stands there with this open, uh, uh, okay, uh, now what? But he still wants his money. So he goes through with it. He kisses Jesus anyway. Interestingly, in John's gospel, there's a moment which you don't see here. It says, even before this kiss takes place, even before Judas gets the chance to approach, Jesus announces himself to the Romans. He calls out to the Romans and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds, I am. And as he says that, the whole Roman continent falls to the ground. They all fall to the ground when he says, I am. Now, of course, Jesus calling himself the great I am is an allusion back to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses says, who are you? What do I call you, God? And he says, I am who I am. Jesus is the I am. Jesus was the burning bush. Every theophany, every appearance of God in physical form in the Old Testament or often called the angel of the Lord, every one of those is Jesus, according to Paul in Colossians 1 and Hebrews in chapter one. He is the appearance of the invisible God. He is the manifestation of God in creation. He is the maker of all, and he is the part of the Godhead who comes into the creation. So God the Father, being all spirit, has never been seen, but God the Son is the one always making these appearances. So Jesus is the I am as part of the Godhead, and he makes that clear here. Slowly, I would have loved to have seen the, the, the Romans at this point. I just try to imagine their expressions. You know, they come up proud and strong, ready to arrest somebody. Next thing you know, they're all back on their backside on the ground, and they have to get up and, oh, I don't know what that was about, but, you know, we're ready to go again. And after they get back up, Jesus says the same thing again. Who are you looking for again? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, come to me. In other words, Jesus is not being taken to the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. And even in the moment of the arrest, Jesus orchestrates this little scene, I think, so that no one would ever misunderstand what took place in this situation. Jesus gave himself over to the Romans. They didn't come and take him. And at that point, after the down and up thing, Judas kisses Jesus, and then in back to Matthew, Jesus says in verse 50, just do what you came here for, friend. I love the fact that Jesus says friend. If you don't think your Lord has a sense of humor, a little biting sarcasm once in a while, he did. He, you know, Judas just used an insincere gesture of friendship to betray Jesus. So Jesus returns the favor by calling him friend sarcastically. 
And then at that moment, the, the Romans seize him, putting him under arrest. Now, having heard Jesus' comment about Judas, having just heard Jesus say, oh, you're going to betray me, and, and then seeing the Romans come forward, the disciples, a little slow to catch things, they finally figure out what's going on, and they begin to react. In Luke's account, we're told that at this moment, the disciples all turn to Jesus and say, do you want our help fighting off the Romans? Uh, Luke twenty-two forty-nine. when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Um, All right, so that's admirable. It's also stupid because there is a Roman cohort in front of 12 guys. I mean, they had no hope. I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, again, it's, it's a little bravado there, but it's even more surprising to me that they thought Jesus needed that help. And I say that because I keep thinking about everything they've seen, everything they've known for three years. And why is that not in their mind in a moment like this? They've seen Jesus walk on water. He, he spoke and a storm stopped, right? He, he multiplies food. There were times when an angry crowd wanted to throw him off a hillside and he just walked away. No one could touch him. I mean, he's clearly capable of taking care of himself. Surely they knew he had the power to stop this arrest. It doesn't seem, though, to be on their minds. And I would offer you two reasons why I think these men moved to this kind of a response under these circumstances. And the first of those reasons comes from an earlier moment that's not recorded in Matthew. But in Luke, you read this. This happened at an earlier time that evening. In Luke twenty-two thirty-five, Jesus said to them, when I sent you out before without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, okay, but now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, well, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, that is enough. So that moment happened just earlier, and I think when that moment happened, Jesus telling them, you know, now's the time to get prepared. Get some money belts, that is, have a a form of provision on you. And have a sword, he says. You know, before this moment, there had been three years of them walking the hillsides of Galilee with Jesus. No one worried about money. Where were they? You ever think about that? These guys didn't have a day job. They walked away from their day job. How do you live for three years with no work? Some of us are thinking, well, I'm about to find out, Steve. (laughs) Unfortunately. But, but in, in, in the answer for that person today is the same as it was back then. Jesus provides. Somehow, fish with coins in their mouth and, and all the rest, Jesus always made sure there was some provision for him and his men. That's his point from earlier. He said in Luke 22, he says, you know, we didn't have money belts. Did you guys ever lack for anything? And they said, no, you know, actually we never did. Okay, point being, I can provide for you. You've got me to care for you. But the circumstances are about to change, he says. He says, now... What the scriptures say about me is gonna be fulfilled. That is, I'm gonna be numbered. Jesus was numbered with transgressors. It's a simple, it's a reference back to an Old Testament prophecy, but it says this. After the crucifixion, the world sees Jesus differently, and increasingly so as a criminal, and those who follow him as criminals. And that's what he means by numbered with transgressors. Anyone associated with me is in danger. In danger of a world that hates the message of the gospel, and will hate those who bring it in many cases. And as such, you need to be prepared for that. But in a very certain sense, they're going to be attacked, they're going to be slandered, they're going to be persecuted, some will be martyred. And they're going to need things like money, because Jesus won't be pulling coins out of fish's mouths anymore. They're going to need to have that provision. He'll still be in the background providing. 
He's just going to do it through more ordinary means. And, he says, they're going to have to be prepared at times with swords. And that's where I think their head got a little off the target here. And they started to think differently than they should have about what he meant. What Jesus meant is when the threat materialized, they had opportunity to defend themselves. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But Jesus is not talking about this moment. In this moment, in the garden, it is not an issue of self-defense. None of these disciples are being attacked. So this is not the moment Jesus was referring to when he said you might want to have a sword once in a while. He's talking about something different, and they didn't understand that. So here are these guys who've just suddenly been told have a sword ready. They see this threat materialize, and I guess in their heads, they added it up. And they said, oh, well, this must be the moment for the sword. You want us to use our swords now? And Jesus says, he's going to say no, but before he can even say no, this is what Matthew says happens next. In chapter 26, verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. All right, so one of the disciples gets carried away. I will give you one guess who this guy is. As I like to say, thank God for Peter. So John tells us in his gospel, and I have to think these two guys must have had something going on because John throws Peter under the bus all the time. Have you noticed that? He's always telling us what, this is one of those cases where John tells us something the other guys didn't. This is Peter. So imagine Peter, now he jumps into the front of Jesus. I almost think of it sort of comically, like a, like a Saturday morning cartoon kind of thing. He jumps you know, in front of Jesus with his, and he pulls a sword. The word for, in Greek for sword here is like a small dagger, something he could have had under his cloak. So he kind of pulls out this dagger, and he goes forward and he lunges into the priest's uh, Slave cutting off his ear. So this act of bravery, as you might think it is, is actually a story of pride and cowardice. And let me explain to you why. And this actually leads us into the second reason why I think these guys acted in this violent response. The first was they've been given swords. I guess we've got to use them. No, that wasn't the reason. Second, though, is because of Peter. Earlier at the Passover meal, remember Jesus told Peter, tonight you're going to betray me three times. And of course, Peter was all indignant. Oh, no, I would never do that. I would never do that. And he says, oh, yeah, well, before the uh, cock crows, you're going to have done this. And I think ever since that moment, over the last couple of hours, that has been eating at Peter. Wouldn't it do that for you? I mean, wouldn't anyone feel that way? A little indignant, a little, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And then you're starting to think, I need to show Jesus that I'm not going to do that. I need to show him that I'm on his side. I'll defend him to the death. And I think knowing Peter's pride, he's brooding about that. And He might have been looking for a way to prove his loyalty. And then you see the Romans step forward. They arrest Jesus. And something inside Peter says, oh, this is my chance to prove to Jesus that I'll take care of him. But he's not as brave as he appears. You know, he said he's willing to go to the death, but maybe not quite so quickly. So he doesn't go after a soldier. Now, the soldiers were armed, right? Breastplates, helmets, the whole thing. He doesn't go after even the temple police. They would have been armed. He doesn't go after the Sanhedrin. They probably were armed, but if, even if they weren't, you're, you're talking about attacking the chief you know, judicial branch or the, the, the chief governing body of the Jewish people. That's a pretty serious offense, right? He looks at the crowd, he sizes it up, he goes, oh, a slave, I'll go after him. So he attacks the one guy who's unarmed in the whole group, and then he cuts off his ear. It's almost as if Peter wanted to look like he wanted to die for Jesus without actually having to do it which I think is further proof that this is an act of pride. And he doesn't even try to land a lethal blow. 
He goes after the guy's ear. Now, I think that's a calculated move on his part to avoid a serious counterattack or the charge of murder. But maybe you want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you think he was going for the guy's neck or something. I don't think it, 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 it uh, makes him look any better that he couldn't even find the guy's neck from two feet away. So he's either a coward or he's incompetent with a sword, and that's probably both. But in any case, uh, Peter comes off looking prideful, impulsive, foolish, and even a bit silly, right? Trying to defend Jesus against a cohort of Roman soldiers. And here's the thing to understand most about this. In the process of this little thing he does, he almost ruins the plan of God. Not that it could have happened, but think about this. What if Peter gets imprisoned or worse at this point? How, how does, what if he had prompted the Romans to kill him or to just break out their swords and say, off with all their heads and kill everybody, which was not out of keeping with Romans? Imagine the problem if Peter's convicted of murder and Jesus dies by a Roman sword on the hillside of, of the Mount of Olives. Now, obviously, that isn't going to happen. We understand God's not going to let it happen. But that's the point. And look what Jesus says next in verse 52. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scripture be fulfilled which says that it must happen this way? All right, so Jesus is obviously unhappy. And he tells Peter first, put your sword away. I get the sense that he's primarily concerned here that Peter's going to hurt himself or Jesus. <laughs> put that thing away before you hurt somebody with that thing. And then he says, look, those who pick up the sword are going to perish by it. And what he means is to take up the sword, that phrase, it means to rely on violence to achieve your objectives to resort to violence. And Jesus says, you know, those who resort to violence are going to find violence returning upon them. And it's hardly a controversial statement, right? I mean, it just makes sense. Violent people invite violence in response. And violence in any form, force in any form, is not a tool of the church. It's never a tool of ministry, period. It's not what Jesus or God ever wants us to do in the accomplishment of his mission. And violence only leads to more suffering, more conflict, and that's the opposite of our calling. Jesus makes that point. In fact, Luke tells us that he uh, turns to help the unfortunate victim of, of Peter's violence at that moment. Luke 21, 51, Jesus said, no, stop, no more of this. And then Luke goes on, and he touched the slave's ear and healed him. This is the only record in the Gospels of Jesus healing a violent injury. And it's also the final healing that Jesus performs in his earthly ministry. And it's, it's obviously an act of compassion, but there's a lot more reason for that than just being nice to the slave. This is out of necessity. Jesus has got to fix this major problem that Peter just created by his impulsive behavior. Because I want you to consider what would happen if he had not healed the slave at that moment. Do you think everybody's just going to stand by and go, oh, that's nice? No. Peter's probably arrested at that point. And he may have been executed for it. He may have just been imprisoned for it. Peter's in trouble. He just did this in front of witnesses. And think about this. This incident gives support for the Jewish charges that have been leveled against Jesus, which say that he and his disciples are violent insurgents seeking to overthrow Rome. He just gave evidence to support the accusation. No longer would the Jewish leaders have to concoct false accusations. They could just point to this one moment and say, we told you so. Peter's completely messed this up. And Jesus has to go to the cross willingly, yes, but he also has to go without cause. 
He has to be not only a willing sacrifice, but an innocent sacrifice, a spotless sacrifice. And at this point, he is, by association, guilty. So he heals the guy to remove any evidence, to undo, essentially, what has been done, so that there can be no charge that he has done anything wrong or that his men have been a part of that with him in some conspiracy. So by his words to Peter, by his actions with the slave, Jesus makes clear to us violence, and let's generalize this for a moment, opposition to authority is not the way of his church. Not in the garden and not afterward. And this is an important corollary to the earlier thing I brought up where Jesus said that they needed to carry a sword. And I told you I'd get back to that because I want to put these in proper perspective. If you talk about one of these without the other, you're going to get somewhere very badly, very wrong, right? In that earlier moment, he was addressing the need for a Christian under some circumstances to be prepared for self-defense when faced with violence. You know, being a follower of Jesus does not require that you become a helpless victim to whatever violent people are around you. You're not supposed to just lay down on the ground and take whatever comes your way. That is not ministry. There's no benefit to Jesus in that lifestyle. You didn't surrender your right to self-defense because you became a Christian. But on the other hand, and this is the corollary, neither are we allowed to instigate violence or force or circumvention of law in order to achieve our goals as a church. In this case, you see Peter using violence, and if you think about his motive for a minute, it almost seems noble. Oh, he's trying to defend Jesus. Hello, does he need it? Is that something Jesus wanted from us? Are we supposed to defend Jesus violently? It's antithetical to Jesus' mission. He came to save the lost with a message of self-sacrifice. Greater love has no man that he would lay his life down for another. That is the message of the gospel, and if you're going to go out and kill people, to impress that message on their heart, it's not, it makes no sense, right? The old adage, I'm gonna introduce people to Jesus one way or another. No, that is not the mission of the church. There's only one way. Paul tells us that the way Christians are supposed to operate, now, and by the way, let me back up for a second, because if you're hearing this strictly in the sense of you know, sword play, oh, I'll never do that. Well, okay, I'm not saying that we need to resort to guns and, and swords. I'm saying even in more subtle forms of forcing people, of being belligerent, of trying to get things your way without letting God do it his way. And for the most part, the common experience is the circumvention of law, right? Some law stands in the way of us doing our mission. Well, that can't be a good law. Find that in the Bible. You won't. What you'll find is this, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never, I love that word, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we act violently, like Peter did, or unlawfully in some other way, to avenge ourselves when we feel threatened or to supposedly defend God and his agenda and the mission of the church and the ministry of the church, do you realize you become an enemy of God in that moment, according to Paul? And I'll say quickly, based on what he said in Romans, there are three ways we become an enemy of God when we try to do things by force that God has not intended to bring about. First of all, you break the peace, and that interrupts your participation in the plan of God. It hurts other people, 
putting somebody else at risk, and it forfeits your, your opportunity to overcome evil. For example, back in this uh, passage where we're studying verse 54, Jesus asked these guys, how can scripture be fulfilled if, if I were to be arrested unless you allow it? In other words, scripture said this is gonna happen, it's gonna happen, why are you getting in the way of it? What Jesus is saying is, in your movement, Peter, you stand opposed to scripture, because scripture said it's gonna happen. So when you try to oppose scripture, who's gonna win? And at what, at what benefit? He isn't saying you're gonna change the plan of God. He's saying you can't change the plan of God, which is to say, if God has not ordained this to happen, trying to make it happen for your own sake is fruitless. It's folly. It's not gonna achieve anything. And that's why Paul says in Romans, leave room for the wrath of God. What he's saying is this. When you break the peace, whether that's through your words or your actions, whether violent or some other form, you, in that moment, you separate yourself from the plan of God because our God is not a God who puts people, uh, who, who brings violence against people as an act of love. He may allow things of this world to come upon us. I'm not saying God isn't in control. What I'm saying is, when you say to someone, believe in Jesus or I'm gonna shoot you to be silly about it, to be excessive about it, right? That is not a method of Jesus. And in that moment, you left the plan of God, even as you might be claiming to work the plan of God. A more contemporary example, a more likely example would be, well, the government of this country says we're not allowed to do this or that or bring this into the country or that into the country, but we're gonna get around that rule. We have this little way of sneaking this in or doing this other thing against their rules. But, you know, it's because it's for the gospel. Wait a minute, friends. Is God in charge of that government like he said he is in Romans 13? Is he capable of doing what he needs through the means of humanity without breaking law? Is, is it a witness of ours to be lawbreakers when it's convenient? That's gonna help us? Jesus is saying, effectively, if you're doing it against the way God has established that it would be done, you're doing something outside the will of God. When you break the peace, you separate yourself from the plan of God. Give room for God to work, whether in wrath against his enemies or in opening doors for what he wishes to do. You're not gonna change his plan in the end. All you're trying to do is participate in it without going outside it. Second thing, when you resort to force, violence, or whatever, law-breaking in general, you inevitably hurt somebody. Inevitably, you're gonna hurt somebody. May I suggest to you that even in seemingly innocent situations, Again, and I'm thinking of situations I've seen where people travel, they want to do something in a foreign country, the laws don't work for our benefit, so we work around those laws. Do you know what you're training the people in your, in your group to do? Violate laws when it's convenient. That's not a healthy thing for them. That is not helping anyone, even if in the moment it feels like you are. Ironically, in this case, as Peter goes after this slave, that slave was the most innocent person in the group. He was the least free to decide what to be and where to go and what to do. He's just there, and he's the one who gets hurt. And Jesus, thankfully, restores this man's ear, and I think there's a lesson in that, right? Jesus can come behind us and clean up our messes, but do you want to be the person who gives Jesus the need to clean up a lot of messes? That's not a good testimony either. So as far as it depends upon us, be at peace with all men. And then finally, forcing things to go our way inevitably means you become a source of evil, rather than the one who overcomes evil with good. That night, the only one who did not have a weapon, as far as we probably can tell, is the slave. Slaves in general were not given weapons in that day. And so here's Jesus correcting for the one man who was innocent, the one evil thing that was done. Do you know the only attack, the only person that was harmed, the only person that did anything violent that night was Peter harming a slave? That's it. Not a great testimony. 
Peter made all those mistakes because he interfered with the plan of God foolishly. Now look, it's easy to beat up on Peter. He's my favorite target. I'm sure when I get to heaven, I won't be reminding him of these things. I'll be a little bit more diplomatic. Uh, I get that he's an important man and he did many things of great stature for the church and we could all do well to be his equal, right? There's, There's no doubt in that. But he had his process of learning. He had his time of development like we all do. And he's in the scriptures for a reason. And I think at least in part, it's as an example against what to do at times. And Peter makes these mistakes foolishly, trying to stop what God had ordained because he didn't think. I just think it's as simple as that. Here's a simple rule. If you can only accomplish your ministry goals by breaking laws or resorting to force, you have the wrong ministry goals. And self-evidently, if you can't get what done, what you think you need to get done without resorting to those things, then you need to check back in with the Lord. He's got a different plan for you under those circumstances, and he's either not doing what you want to do, or he's not doing it when you want to do it, or he's not doing it through you, but whichever one it is, you want to figure out where you're wrong and get in league with him. Figure it out and then go forward without sinning. So far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. It just comes down to one thing, knowing God's sovereignty. Understanding he has the power to accomplish anything. Simply put, if he needed the rule broken, he'd break it for you. If he needed the law changed, he'd get that done. He would find the way for you. And the proof of that is in verse 53. Jesus says, this is where I think the thinking part is what is at issue here. Jesus turns to Peter and it's like he says, hello, Hey, if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels at this point. Now, he uses the term legion, I think, in contrast to the Romans. The Romans had a cohort. Cohort is two to 600. A legion is 5,000 men in the Roman army in the way they counted. So Jesus says, I could get you 60,000 angels right now if that was necessary, and that's a lot. It's a lot of angels, a lot of angelic power. Uh, They'd all fit on the head of a pin. No, that's a long joke, anyway. Jesus says, if you understand what I could do, it would have caused you to at least pause and say, one dagger, 60,000 angels, maybe this isn't what God wants to do. I'll just wait and see what he's planning. That would have been the right response. You should have thought about that. And I hope you have that same attitude sometimes. When you are faced with the opportunity to force our culture or force a person or a government or something else to do something that you feel, boy, that's what God would want, It doesn't beg the question, well, if it's what he wants, why hadn't he done it? Without you having to resort to breaking law or forcing, you know, that's where you're stopping and you're thinking for a second. I bet many of us have been tempted of late under the current circumstances of our day and in the culture that we're seeing around us right now. I'll bet a lot of us are feeling tempted to force some things here and there whenever we can, right? It seems everywhere you turn, pressure is building in this culture to force everything. And, and whether it's pressure to get back to work or pressure to get back to school or pressure to get sports going or pressure to open the churches or pressure in the political realm, of course, or maybe it's just families that are, that are struggling under the pressure of too much time together. And I've seen that too. They all have the potential to bring you to the same point Peter was in that night where your, your ego is threatened a little, your way of life, your security, your sense of who you are and what you want and you're a little defensive, and you're a little edgy, and you're tired of everyone on Facebook and elsewhere telling you what's right and what's wrong, and you don't agree, and you get this little bit of chip-on-the-shoulder, pent-up energy that says, I'm going to force this. I'm going to show people. I'm going to do something. And the 
interesting part of that for me is how many times that transfers into a conversation about our faith as if I show Christ I'm serious when I go and I do these things of force, of pressuring, of changing things, things that may have nothing to do with the church. When you're tired of limits, when you're tired of restrictions, when you feel mistreated or unheard, that's when you try to take matters into your own hand. And not every one of those is wrong, I'm saying, but double check, ask the question, did the Lord want this or not? Is this what he's doing or not? Am I doing what I want? Am I listening to the Lord? I have, a, I have a little saying I use on this issue about submission. Ultimately, this is a submission issue, submitting to God. And the question is this. If you have a true heart for submission, you are always looking for a way to obey. You're always looking for the path that lets obedience be the outcome. When you have a heart to disobey and rebel, you're always looking for the excuse not to obey. And at the slightest opportunity, you'll point to it and say, there, there it is, I can do what I want. You don't want to be the second person. And if that's you, put the sword away, so to speak. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Ask him for patience. Ask him to give you understanding on why is the thing that's happening happening. As some have asked me, why is the world falling apart? Because he said it would. And it's a good thing in the long run. Because before the new can come, the old must pass away. Both your body and the world in general. So let's not step out of his plan as Peter did, thinking we're gonna force, for example, this world to maintain itself, to be permanent and corrected or fixed. There's no fix in this world. Nor should we think about trying to force the world to to know what we know and believe what we believe. It doesn't work that way. Our job is not to fix this world. Our job is to rescue people from out of it and prepare them for what comes next. So we don't wanna hurt anyone. We don't wanna be evil. We wanna correct for those things. So far as it depends upon us, we wanna be at peace with all people. I hope. That message, it's not the, the, the message of the text today is what we read, but I hope the application of it for you right now is something immediately um, meaningful and useful. We live in a world that is contentious and growing ever more so. Don't join contention. Be the peacemaker. Be the one who speaks to things that are better and coming so far as it depends upon you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us a heart of peace and willingness to follow you in times in which everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Help us, Father, to be a message of, of comfort and reconciliation, not in worldly terms, but in spiritual terms. Reconciling with the living God through the one whom he provided, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to see how we can be that light in darkness. Help us to be the one who sees what God is doing around us and wants to be a part of it without forcing something different. Help us to be like Peter, Father, in the sense of someone who, though he didn't always have the answers at first, learned and grew and matured to become someone who had answers for others. And Father, as we conclude our first day back, we thank you for your faithfulness once more that we could gather and be with each other today and in your word most of all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.